And, um, and that was kind of that. Oh, wait, 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 wait. And a jolly good day to you, Marcel. <laughs> and a jolly good day to you as well. So you're drinking coffee and I'm drinking green tea. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, actually, you set me up for far worse than, uh, you know, than what I'm seeing here. You, how are you doing anyway? Um, not bad. Not bad. Um, as usual, keeping busy is never a problem. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have a couple of things that I'm working on, a lot of which have absolutely nothing to do with the old worlds of, uh, of open source and community development. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of weird because you and I are no spring chickens anymore. And there are a Get lot your of tongue, you monster. Okay, right. summer chickens. <laughs> All Everyone right. talks about spring chickens. No one talks about summer or fall chickens. I think that's because that's when they get eaten. I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, please continue. All right, I accept I'm not a spring chicken. Go ahead. Continue. No, but one thing I noticed that there's a, is there's a lot of new open source projects that are starting up, and they all now come to not just sort of, they don't seem like they're grassroots anymore. It's not a bunch of people that get together and say, hey, let's make something. Mm -hmm. It ends up being like some higher order entity that says something needs to be done. Let's see if we can find some volunteers to help. And there, I'm finding there's a lot more top down than bottom up these days. Mm -hmm. And it just seems to be affecting the culture of a number of open source communities these days. I don't know. Do you find that? Well, no, actually, I've been finding that for a long time. And in fact, I think I've, I think I've whined to you about that to some degree uh, from time to time, which is the idea that, you know, once upon a time, when I first got involved in open source, which, you know, okay, so I'm not a spring chicken, which was a gazillion years ago now. Um, it was fun. It was actually a hell of a lot of fun. There were all sorts of neat things happening. There were cool projects that people were working on. And just the excitement that revolved around some of these projects and whether it's, you know, you know, the Linux, uh, various desktops, uh, you know, uh, Apache web services, you know, you name it, whatever, whatever projects it is that people were working on. Um, it was all new. It was very exciting. And you could wrap up people from any and all walks of life to be part of this community and contribute to it and be part of it. And it was kind of heady, actually. It was kind of neat to feel that, you know, everybody, they didn't have to be corporate to be involved in this thing. You know, it just had to be people who were who were into the idea of the technology and where the technology could take us. And that was very freeing and it was very exciting. And then somewhere along the way, everything became corporate. And um, and it all be, it all came down to, well, can we make money at this? You know, uh, can I get a job doing this? And uh, in fact, I whined about this in a column for, uh, you know, a, a, a dear departed organization that, that we used to work with, um, you know, where I said, I said, 
you know, if you're going to get a job in open source, perhaps you should consider doing it for the right reasons. You know, the open part of open source as opposed to, oh, you know, this is where the money is these days or this is where I can get a job these days. There's nothing wrong with it. I mean, everybody has to feed themselves, has to put mm -hmm. clothes on their backs, you know, a roof over their heads, all that sort of stuff. But that doesn't mean that that has to be the whole driver of what you're doing. And so open source became, if you'll pardon the expression, boring. You know, um, there weren't any communities per se. I'm not saying there weren't any, but the communities were, you know, uh, gray haired guys like, well, me, you don't have gray hair, but, you know, gray haired guys like us um, who, you know, remember the days when we were doing all these cool and wonderful things. Um, one of the, like the, the Linux user groups, you know, where you still got small numbers of hanger ons who, continue to meet on a monthly basis, you know, uh, hoping for something new and exciting to happen. And I, I'm not saying, uh, I'm not blaming people for a nostalgia trip there, but it felt like we were changing the world at one time. Well, we and were. It was, we were it was like we're working for the man. It, well, no, we were changing the world. We were doing things like install fest, bring in your computer, we'll make it useful again. Yeah. You know, and 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 that kind of thing. I, absolutely, the energy was there, and you're right. It's you know, on one hand, where you say, "Where's the money?" People are looking for jobs, uh, but you're right. It's it's not the it's you're not there always because you want to be there and because you think you're changing the world. Now you're there because you think you're changing the world for some entity that now <laughs> owns the license and IP to what's going on. And we'll have a, a freemium model and, you know, here's the open source version and here's the open source plus plus version that you have to subscribe to. Yeah, I mean, there, there was this idea that, you know, we build things, we make exciting things and uh, maybe the money comes, maybe it doesn't. It doesn't matter. That's not the point of it. And now that is the point of it, you know. Um, think, I mean, you think for a moment, who are the biggest, now I grant you we're living in a world of, you know, tech layoffs and so forth, but the Linux kernel, you know, the heart of, you know, when things all got, you know, super exciting back in 1991, um, what's the biggest, who's the biggest contributor to the Linux kernel today? Uh, would not surprise me if it was like Intel and Microsoft. It's Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> IBM was the biggest contributor at one point. Now it's Microsoft. So, I mean, so you've got Microsoft and, you know, and IBM and uh, I don't know what, I mean, Intel was a big contributor at one point. I don't know what their numbers are these days. I have to be perfectly honest. I haven't looked in a while, but it's, it's the big corporate heads that are driving all this stuff. And it's not that I'm, I'm bothered by this, you know, because in a way, you know, we won. I say this regularly, you know, the, mm -hmm. the open source movement won. The stuff that's out there that's being used that's really driving the industry is the stuff that, you know, and we, and I'm not saying you and me specifically, but, you know, the open source community created this stuff, right? That's where it came out of. Um, so, so we've won, but in having won, you know, it's, 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 it's like the hippies in the 60s, you know, who found out that they were part of, you know, they, they were fighting against the man and then 20 years later looked in the mirror and said, oh my God, I am the man. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I have, I've always had a minor personal fear what happens when Linus retires yeah. because he's been so respected. He's been able to pull off the benevolent dictator because he's Linus. 
And so when he retires, whoever fills those shoes is not going to have that gravitas. And in the absence of that gravitas, in the absence of that benevolent dictatorship, uh, even if it becomes a committee, it's going to be, become a committee of the Intels and the Microsofts and whoever it is can afford to pay people full time to work on this stuff. And that really kind of limits it. And I wonder what there's a part of me that fears and it may be totally unjustified, but you know, that there's going to be a corporate direction for Linux, Linux uh, going forward that may spur a whole bunch of people to say, uh, no, we're going to keep we're going to keep it free, and there might be a split. Um, I almost see it as a kind of, uh, you know, red hat centos kind of thing, where there's going to be one that's corporatized and one that's not. Yeah, I. I don't actually, I don't doubt that in a big way, but I also don't know that it hasn't already happened. And uh, I mean, the reason I say that is there are a lot of companies that, you know, produce a Linux where sure the source is available if you have the resources and the know-how and everything to repackage it and create something on your own. Cause I mean, that's at the heart of the GPL for instance, right? You have to release the code back into the community, but there are very, very few people out there or very few groups for that matter who have the resources necessary to create and maintain, um, you know, a, a sizable distribution that would fit a sizable marketplace. So in a sense, you're, you know, if you sign up for Red Hat, you're paying for it. If you sign up for Canonical, Ubuntu, you know, and I'm talking corporate level here, obviously, you're paying for it. You're paying for all of these things. And it doesn't matter that somewhere at the core, the code is available in the open source community. The fact of the matter is, it's still a corporate entity. Yeah, and, and, and the, the proportion of the user base that's actually able to examine the code and fork it and do that kind of thing mm -hmm. is probably not very big. And it's not even all just the paid stuff. So for instance, even if you have good old, you know, a bog standard Ubuntu now, mm -hmm. it's depending a lot on these things called snaps. Yeah. Right. For for those are going know, away though, aren't they? I thought I thought they were I thought they were abandoning snaps in favor of Flatpak. Oh, is Ubuntu done that? Okay. Yeah, I, I think I, I I I you know I let, let, let me let me Google it here while you talk and see if I well I, actually we can save this discussion for another <laughs> day because. Since we last recorded, there's been a few things happening in the world of AI. And given how deep you are in this, uh, I figured maybe there's a couple of new things that have happened and new, new things that have come online and new packages available um, that, 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 that deal with this thing called AI. Marcel, do you have any background? <laughs> You know, this uh, just for the uh, for the benefit of the people who want to know why Evan is wording this uh, in that fashion um, offline or or, you know, on, on our discord server or my discord server, how you want to look at it. Um, we've chatted more than once about uh, the the potential risks, you know, the dark side versus the light side. So, you know, it's like the force, you know, you get the light side of the force and the dark side of the force in AI. I'm firmly in the belief that the light side is the good side and the side that will win out in all of this. Um, and I think 
a lot of the reason that I feel that way, a lot of the reason that I believe that way is I am, you know, and, and I'll, I'll get into this in a minute, but I am starting to feel the kind of excitement around AI development, uh, particularly in the cases of, you know, things like large language models, AI image generation, all these sorts of things that aren't tied 100% to some giant corporate machine. I'm not saying there isn't a giant corporate machine out there, but I'm starting to see a kind of early open source community excitement building around this stuff that is really, really capturing my imagination. That's really getting me excited. And, um, and for anybody who's been living under a rock, of course, the big news was back at the end of November when OpenAI released ChatGPT, which quickly became the most popular application, you know, a computer application in history. Um, I think the, the number was, you know, it reached 100 million active users in less than two months, which is bigger than anything that's ever come before. So um, this is like a massively rapid takeoff and uh, to uh, quote or to summon or to uh, channel Ray Kurzweil a little bit here. The singularity is getting nearer by the minute. I OK, the singularity. Um, <laughs> And previous to that, the closest I'd come to it was this thing called Minecraft, which was an attempt to try and turn a Raspberry Pi into a Google Assistant. Yes, or an Alexa or whatever. Mm -hmm. Never, you know, and to have the leap from that to what we have now is absolutely staggering. And by the way, I'm not, I don't, the reason why Marcel thinks I'm talked about the dark side is because I'm the one that sort of says, whoa, boy. Oh, you know, put some reins on that. Things are moving way too fast for a lot of people. Um, there's a lot of problems going on in society that I think are at their core because society moves at glacial speed and yes! things are happening too fast. That's for my them. point. I say this all the time. And and but no, no, but I'm this is this is writ larger than tech. When you go into issues right now about trans rights. And you go into other issues about, uh, you know, about why politics has become so, so weaponized in many parts of the world. A lot of it, I think, is that there's many parts of technology, diversity and others that big chunks of society just are not having an easy time catching up to. And uh, I'm, I'm, I, you see social disruption happening in places that have nothing to do with tech because society isn't catching up, can't catch up fast enough. The law, the legal system can catch up fast enough, all sorts of things. And my, and, and, and where I sometimes feel like I'm putting the reins on Marcel about this <laughs> is not because I'm trying to be a glass half empty kind of guy. I love what's happening. It's just, there's some things where if, if, if the AI world doesn't, doesn't figure out for itself what the negative sides are and think about how to address them. When society comes up with its remedies, they're probably not going to be either effective, but the question then is how much damage do they do along the way? And so there's been, and so this is, this is, I guess, my issue. There's a phenomenal amount of good, but are we prepared for how to deal with, for instance, you know, the fields of work where people are going to be potentially um, put out of work almost en masse on certain job types because chat will do it so much better than they will. 
And, you know, uh, there's articles that I've seen in The Economist and elsewhere where they talk about, you know, the jobs that are more most likely and least likely to re be replaced by AI. So if you're in furniture repair, you know, you've got it made. AI ain't replacing <laughs> furniture repair anytime soon. Or, or if you're a plumber. <laughs> Well, a lot of a lot of the hands-on stuff, of course, yeah. but I mean, there's even a couple of mental things. But if if your work is an interpreter, or a translator, you're screwed. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of other fields that are going to be first off the chopping block. And I don't know if society is, I don't know if society in its current state, bashed and battered by COVID and all sorts of other factors. Yeah how well it's going to be able to adapt to what could be a very significant disruption. All right, I'm, I'm going to take that in a few steps, okay? The first thing that I want to sort of, you know, and, and there are a lot of things you've just thrown in there. One of them is the kind of disruption that you're talking about from an economic, personal economic, uh, global economic perspective is I'm sorry to say inevitable. It has been inevitable for a long time. Okay, um, the the since we talked since we started out talking about chickens, let's just say that the chickens are coming home to roost. <laughs> See what I did there? Spring <laughs> or any season? Yes. Yes. Anyway, the point is this has been going on for a long time. It has been coming for a long time. It's like the slow moving disaster of climate change. Okay, we're the freaking frogs sitting in the water that slow the temperature is slowly rising and we're getting cooked. Okay, nobody's really noticing. We kind of need and 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 maybe I'm oversimplifying this, but we kind of need a major shakeup because the minor shakeups are not actually doing anything to anybody. As you as you remarked and as I've remarked a countless times, I'm frustrated by the glacial pace at which uh, governments move, organizations move, and so forth, and they still think that they're living 150 years ago instead of in the world that we inhabit today. There are countless things that need to happen right freaking now. You know, we can't slowly, you know, move these people over the next hundred years into some of these things. We can't slowly move industry into green um, you know, into 100% green energy over the course of the next 200 years. It's got to happen like fast, okay? We have to get on these things right now. And unfortunately, in the case of, you know, technology replacing people, that was going to happen anyway. It's been happening for a long time. It was going to happen. So what we need is not to put the brakes on things. It's to come up with a solution that's going to take care of people. And I know that this is one of my soapboxes, but we desperately need a universal basic income, okay? So that people aren't starting at zero, so that people have the resources necessary to feed themselves, to clothe themselves, to put a roof over their heads. And then we'll deal with all the other problems that come along as well. But that has to happen because nothing is going to stop all these other things by saying, let's take it slow and easy. Climate change isn't gonna stop by taking things slow and easy. Uh, the rights of marginalized people aren't going to get any better by taking things slow and easy. Um, you know, there, there are things that need to be taken care of now. And one of the reasons that I'm excited about artificial intelligence is it is giving us a toolkit that we haven't had before, a toolkit to 
create solutions, to create things at a speed that we've never had at our disposal before. And I know that's scary. I know it is, but it, it, we, we, we've been given superpowers. I wrote a blog post about this, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago or something. What are you going to do with your new AI superpowers? <laughs> we've been given superpowers. We've been given the ability to, to think about things and create things in a way that we've never had before. And this is where I get excited about the whole open source part of it. Everybody is getting involved in this. Like the bar to entry is sitting down in front of chat GPT or inside one of these uh, generative AI things and making stuff. And everybody can sit down in front of a terminal, in front of a computer and make things now. And, um, okay, I'm, and I'm, that is both extremely good and extremely horrifying. Because if I think of all the people that were able to mislead well-meaning folks into buying useless uh, cyber coins and mm -hmm. stuff like that, and, and people that are really good at defrauding others under current circumstances and now have superpowers to help them do that. And so, yes, superpowers can be a great thing. Unfortunately, one of my favorite shows these days happens to be something called The Boys. It does not paint superpowers in the most positive picture you could think of. Yeah, but that's because the superpowers are in the hands of a few people, okay? What I'm looking at is I'm looking at a world where everybody has superpowers, okay? And that's one of the reasons, again, I, I know, I, know I, I, I bring up universal basic income to you on a regular basis, but that's one of the things. I mean, the reason that people fall for a lot of this crap is because they're desperate, okay? People are seeing their opportunities disappearing. They're seeing more powerful people than them. They're, you know, they're, they're living in fear of what's coming next. So what you do is you get rid of most of that fear up front, okay? You're going to have enough to eat. You're going to have enough to put clothes on your back. You're going to have enough to live. Okay, let's move on to the next problem. Um, my, 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 my son, uh, one of my sons is, uh, likes to point out, you know, the solutions that people overlook that seem horribly simple. Like, for instance... Uh, in Norway, there, the problem of homelessness basically doesn't exist. And the reason it basically doesn't exist is they provided housing for people. Oh, my God. <laughs> what, 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 an amazingly, what an amazingly simple solution. I realize it involves money. It involves determination. It involves government. It involves political will. But that doesn't mean the solutions don't exist. And sometimes you got to drag people with kicking and screaming into the solutions. Sorry, you, you definitely. Well, well, no, the problem is this 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 kind of argument um, cries out for a devil's advocate. And the last thing I want to do is be that advocate. Um, Please be that advocate. I have a great I have a great deal of respect for the devil. Well, just in the sense that arguably what Norway is able to do, it does because there's other countries that are being innovative on its behalf. Mm hmm. Right, it's able to piggyback on innovations and things that are done in societies that are far less equal. Now, do I th would I love Canada to do the same thing, or the U.S. or other elsewhere in the EU? But Scandinavia is massively heavily taxed, and so there's a lot of what uh, there's a lot of what libertarians would call uh, wealth transfer, forced wealth transfer. Personally, I'm not particularly against that. Again, though, 
there's a lot of entrenched interests that are going to fight that tooth and nail. But I want to get back to something you said about, you know, when everyone has superpowers. And the first and 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 the uh, I mean, the, the parallel people don't want to draw is what's happening in the US where you have some politicians is how do you deal with bad guys with guns? Well, by putting the guns in the hands of every good guy that's out there, too, which basically means even more people get shot. Now, except I, that AI on. isn't a gun. But hold on, I'll give you an example of somewhere where I think that this kinds of arms race, AI arms race, is already happening, which is in the field of education. Right. So you basically have AI that is now helping students write term papers and essays in in a way that perhaps allow people to present a paper that doesn't doesn't demonstrate their personal grasp of the subject matter. And so you have the academic world that's pulling its hair out, trying to figure out, well, how do we deal with this? And so there's now all sorts of AI bots that'll say, we'll tell you when a term paper or an essay is written by an AI and when it's not, except as you probably know, those things don't have a very good track record. Of picking no, up. and in fact, I, I, I personally sent you the, a story about this which somebody went and put the U.S. Uh, um, Constitution through one of these AI checkers, and it came out as being 100% AI written. And in fact, the Bible, the King James Version of the Bible, came out at 97.5% written by an AI, which to me fully supports the simulation theory that we're living in a, sim- a computer simulation, because obviously all of this stuff was created by AIs before we came along. Or okay. the or the or the AI that belonged to the aliens that came here to bring it. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. I'm sorry. I realize I'm I'm joking, but if ancient texts, because they're not written in a language that's you know that's I don't know uh, casual, you know, um, is flagged as being a hundred percent or nearly a hundred percent written by an AI, that tells me that those things are basically shit. Yeah. <laughs> Right. But going back to this whole thing of this arms race between students with AI and teachers with AI, right? So you have students that are writing their essays with AI. They don't know stuff. They're just feeding prompt. You know, their best skill right now is being able to design a prompt. And, you know, they're going in and they've got this stuff. Meanwhile, the the professors are rhyming themselves with AI that is problematic in its accuracy Mm -hmm. of whether or not they're going to spot it or not. How does the field of education cope with this? Because it's definitely not producing teachers that are evaluating their students or students that are demonstrating their knowledge. And this, to me, requires another rethink. And it basically means that in order to actually find out if a student knows what they're talking about, you have to ask them. Mm -hmm. You know, we may have to go back to where, you know, professors and or you know, their helpers are actually interviewing their students, looking them in the eye, asking them questions without a, without a, a, a device in their hand mm-hmm. and getting an idea whether they know the subject matter. And that's more work for the academics. It's much more work for the academics. They can't be as lazy as they have been so far. But it also has the ability to actually produce a much better cadre of students that know what they're doing. Because, I mean, I've, I've, I've had problems 
for a long time now with academia, especially in humanities and social sciences, where students are just churning out all these essays and papers that no one will ever read past their initial presentation. And they just turn out the same stuff. And we're not really churning out a generation that actually has the ability to act on any of the problems they identify. Everyone's just re-identifying the same problems without, you know, and coming up with super simplistic solutions and perhaps dispensing with this whole thing of writing essays and actually getting into interviews so that the students demonstrate they know what they're talking about may actually produce us a better category of students, a better quality of students that come out of these. You know, um, I, I, I've, I've also had issues with uh, the educational system basically my whole life. Um, one of the things that uh, I think the idea of just regurgitating something doesn't actually prove much. I mean, if you can cram for an exam, for instance, the night before, and then you get a really decent score, and then I ask you two weeks later about what it is that you wrote something and you don't remember a damn thing, I question how much you've actually learned or how much, you know, what you've actually shown by the fact that you were able to cram and write this essay the night before. Like, you know, to me, to me, that's more a question. It's it's more an endurance thing at that point. Show me that you have the endurance necessary, or or the um, I don't know, or the the focus necessary to be able to prepare for this one event, which we will then forget about for the rest of your life. And th there's there's something that sort of bothers me about that, and um, and has always bothered me about that. Now. In some schools, including some of my son's teachers, okay, they've actually embraced the fact that Chad GPT is out there and available for their students. So they've said up front, I'm okay with you using these tools. I want to see where you started with these tools, where you took them. I want to know which parts you did, which parts they did. And I think what it does at that point is it sort of breaks down the desire to cheat 100% because a lot of the, like you're a writer, I'm a writer, you know, um, you know, the frustration of looking at a blank page or looking at a project where you're just starting. It's, it's mind numbing. Sometimes writer's block is not for lack of ideas. Ideas are a dime a freaking dozen, right? The problem is, oh my God, I have this big project I need to get working on. Sometimes, and the solution is always, you got to get started, you know? And I think what chat GPT and what things like that do is they get you started, okay? Not to mention that they make it possible for you to look at things differently, okay? Um, you, you talked to, you mentioned prompt engineering, just as, a, as an, you know, we're developing a, a cadre of prompt engineers. I think well, that's I, 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 I see this as being the, 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 next, the next big thing. Now that we've exhausted the whole thing about SEO generation and SEO experts, and we'll, we'll give you all the best keywords and stuff. Good riddance. Good There's a, but do you not be, see that being replaced with a whole, with a whole, um, with a whole army of fly by night, I'll help you write GPT prompts. Okay, first of all, I, I, I just want to point out how insanely new all of this is. Okay, like it is the end of April. All right, 
This exploded on the scene, not on November 30th, when they first made it available, although I was one of the people who jumped on pretty darn quickly, as I typically do, because I'm that kind of person. Um, but at most, we're talking five months that this stuff has been around at this level, okay? The idea that prompt engineers are going to be the new SEO types and so forth, I think is a little... It's a little early to call that one. And oh, to go with to go with to go with the chicken analogy, we shouldn't count those chickens before they're actually hatched. No, but also it means if you're looking to start a new career for yourself right now, becoming a professional prompt writer is probably not a bad way to point yourself. Yeah, except that except that these are all things that anybody can learn if they actually sit down and use the tools to any amount whatsoever. No, 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 no. You look at me skeptically, okay? Look, anyone can write their own SEO search words too that hasn't stopped people coming along and proclaiming themselves as experts. No, no, I agree with you. I agree with you on that. But the fact of the matter is, if you use the tools at all, okay, you'll start to understand that there are ways of asking for things that actually will get you better results. Also, if you start to understand that these things do use natural language, and that's something that people haven't quite wrapped their heads around because again, we're only five months into this, okay? People haven't wrapped their heads around the idea that you can say things, not just, you know, uh, tell me about this or write me a post about this. You can say, write me, you know, or, or describe this to me, but also contrast it with these ideas and point out some things that I may not have thought about or that people typically don't think about. And that will actually tell the artificial intelligence he's not interested in, you know, in a, you know, a canned answer looking, you know, they're looking for something that is, you know, slightly outside the box. Please go ahead. But that's where I think this opportunity lies is with the people that will spend all day practicing on asking GPT for stuff, and they will understand the prompts that can extract the maximum benefit, the negative prompts of say, give me this, don't put in this. Mm-hmm. I can see that becomes a talent. Right? Well, the, no, I, 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 I agree with you, but it's, it's, it's the reverse of garbage in, garbage out, you know, genius in, genius out, right? So I like that. You should coin that phrase, genius in, genius out. But you know what I mean? Deal. What you're going to get out of this is going to be as good as the prompt you put in. And I can see, I can see a, a profession, if not an industry, of people that know how to, how to use the idiosyncrasies of any particular implementation to get the most out of it. Mm-hmm. Do you not see that happening? I see that as well, a I, I do. I do. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our friends, uh, you know, on uh, on the uh, on the Free Thinker at Large Discord plug um, is is Nick, who you know, like first of all, people have been sharing the AI images that they've been creating there, and uh, I'm moving away from ChatGPT just for a moment here. I want to get back to it, uh, to, you know, g- language models specifically, but the AI generation stuff. I don't know if you've noticed, but some of the stuff that people are starting to put on the uh, on the Discord, there's some like amazing things there. And in fact, Nick in particular has been going a little overboard on it. In fact, uh, um, 
in, in fact, I've actually used a couple of the images that he's generated as my new backgrounds for, <laughs> for my computer because they look so damn good. Um, and, and that's, I mean, that's what he's doing. He's experimenting with it. He's experimenting with the technology and, and keep in mind that while there are products that you pay for, okay, a lot of this stuff is free and freely acceptable to you or freely accessible, not acceptable, accessible to you. And that's part of the excitement. And that's part of what gets me back to, you know, the early days of open source. I didn't have to buy a license. You know, I didn't have to spend 120 bucks or whatever it was for a Windows license. I could install an open source desktop on my PC and save that, you know, especially if I was, you know, the type of person who just bought like a box and was going to put something on that box. That excitement is back. And there are models that have been first leaked, but also just put out on the internet, like language models, smaller language models that people are tweaking, that they're playing with. Uh, Stable Diffusion, Stable Stability.ai, the company behind Stable Diffusion, uh, releases this stuff as open source and provides sites where you can put up, you know, alternative models for creating images. And now, of course, language models as well. Sorry, go ahead. You you look like you're trying to no, say something. No, but I mean, sorry. Before we go too deep down this path, uh, could you possibly help educate me and maybe along with me our readers on what the heck is a language model, oh, okay. and what is what is the massive leap that has taken us from Google Assistance, Google Assistant, <laughs> and Bing? Uh, into what seems to some people overnight being GPT-3 and all the various interfaces. I think there's an, there's an awful lot of lack of understanding about what the heck is actually going on, what this great leap in knowledge is. And, um, and, and then later on, I want to get into the whole thing about open source or whatever and why the company OpenAI is not open in the way you expect. But, but, but first, can we get into the little bit of the explain like I'm five, what the heck is going on? Okay, well, the, the biggest difference is lots and lots of data, you know, to, to oversimplify things. But let me sort of uh, back up on that. Um, the GPT, first of all, the, the initial stands for generative pre-trained transformer. And the transformer, the, the T in transformer actually comes from Google. They're, you know, um, their bard, of course, is notoriously absent from most of the world and, <clears throat> and has taken a beating from ChatGPT, uh, as Google has taken. But they're the ones who came up with the T in Transformer. Generative means I can, I can create things from data. Pre-trained means I trained this data originally on a huge body of data. And that huge body can basically be all of the text on the Internet. Um, or, or portions of the text that already exists on the internet. And but that doesn't mean that somebody who puts something into chat GPT means that it's immediately scanning the entire internet in real time to come back with an answer. Somewhere this is- Well, not in chat GPT because chat GPT does not access the internet. It's data stops at the end of 2021. Okay, so that's one thing that's important to understand. It's not going at the internet in real time. There is a blob of data that has been collected somewhere that is now used as the foundation for ChatGPT, right? Right, except that that data is not, as some people imagine, the text itself. 
okay? It's sort of like, um, and let me just give you the T again, the transformer, the T, the transformer in T is that I can take all this, I can, I can, you know, mush this stuff up, transform it into something different at the end of it. And I sort of joke about the idea that humans are basically GPT as well. You know, we're generative, we make things, but we're pre-trained on all the knowledge that we picked up in school, that we picked up while playing with others. Uh, driving to and from work, watching television and so forth. And then we transform all that into new and interesting things. So we're kind of GPT models ourselves. And in some ways, the big breakthrough is that, and this is, you know, again, this is really simplistic at the like I'm five thing. A lot of what I do when I'm talking at this moment, or you do when you're talking or anybody does, is we're it's not like we're sitting there analyzing what we're going to say. We're generating this text. We're generating this speech as we go along. Okay. It's all being generated as we go along. And we can do that because we've been pre-trained with years, you know, of, well, not just years, but also, you know, millennia of uh, evolution that has given us all these tools. So we just sort of build up on these tools, large amounts of data. And the more data we have, the more interesting things we're able to say, the more interesting things we're able to create, we're able to write, we're able to paint, if that's where you know our interests are. Um, so you've been, you've been trained on all this stuff. You, you don't remember everything verbatim, which is why these systems hallucinate, right? Okay. But if I ask you, when's the Battle of Hastings? When was the Battle of Hastings? Oh, you don't know that. Something. 1066. Anyway, the the point there is, there little bits. There are all these little bits of information, these facts, and so forth. But then I could tell you that you know, well, it was William the Conqueror, and and you know, and then I would be, you know, and then I might be wrong or something like that because I don't have all the facts, but I have some of the facts, and I can assemble and I can give you information that's relatively accurate most of the time, but humans routinely make mistakes. We're routinely explaining things, saying things, and inserting falsehoods, not because we're lying, okay, but because we're fallible and we don't have like an exact representation of everything, which is why things like Microsoft's Bing chat accesses the internet and can give you cross references to where it's going you want to say something jump in yeah uh but okay to go back to you to you know you asking me about the battle of hastings and me getting it wrong so mm -hmm. if i was not put on the spot and i was given like 30 seconds to do that as you know i could go to the internet and i could look it up yes right now um uh but and here's the problem with going to the internet <laughs> i have my own little circle of trusted sources Yes. Right. I could well go to a site that said the Battle of Hastings never happened. And mm -hmm. I know how to discern the difference. I how how does the bot know how to tell the difference? Because there's all sorts of various interpretations, including a lot of different interpretations of what you and I might call factual information. Uh, various sources on the Internet will have wildly divergent views from ours. You know, especially on the issue of, you know, metaphysics and, and, and religion and where do mm -hmm. things come from, uh, you have wildly different views of things uh, that are presented by both sides as sheer fact. Mm -hmm. You and I are able to discern, okay, if I go to Wikipedia, I can, I can understand it most of the time with the understanding that occasionally it gets political, blah, blah, blah. 
I can, you and I can both have our trusted sources. And we probably also know that there's places that we can go to that are highly reliable in giving us unreliable information. Mm-hmm. How does a bot tell the difference? In exactly the same way. Okay. It's trained with an understanding that some sources are going to be more reliable than others. The, the other thing is, now, well, they, now is it, is it explicitly given that information by its creator or does it, no. how does it discern what's real and what's not? No, it's, it's not explicitly. And, and granted, I do not know all the ins and outs of these systems. Let's be clear about this. Um, but it's not given that information. We assume that for the most part, there are more sources of the right information for some things on the internet, especially if what you're doing is scouring things like encyclopedias, Wikipedia, you know, um, we'll say reliable sources in quotes here. Um, And if you go out with an understanding that that's the case, you're going to tend to weigh that information as likely more accurate than other information that's sitting out there, right? In fact, in, in some, like, you, you mentioned SEO, which I think is a plague upon the world. Um, before SEO, Google's search algorithms were actually excellent because they would weigh the validity of the search results that they give you, not on whether you were plugging in the right terms into some SEO formula or something like that, but how many other places backed up the data, the information, you know, how many other sites would cross-reference that same information. And it was a lot more useful than it is today. A Google search these days, you know, and I, I mean... Sorry, but of course, what, what, what corrupted that was money. Because yes. when Google's search term was based on that, based on how many people trusted this link versus that link and so on, and the original algorithms were fantastic. But then it came time to monetize that. Mm-hmm. You couldn't monetize that algorithm. So you had to monetize keywords. Yes. And Google has made a pretty pretty coin in selling <laughs> keywords to advertisers. But that immediately opens the, the door to people prepared to game the system. Absolutely. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but with i mean part of the belief and again we'll see how this turns out in the long run but part of the belief is that if you have enough information you know you're able to discern where the truth is because you can you can say okay well i know these things over here and i know these things over here and you can't get from here to here therefore there must be something wrong between these two places i'm oversimplifying this i realize but also sometimes the masses can be wrong no, no, no. And I'm, it's not simply a case of the masses. It's it's a case of what makes sense. OK, can I I mean, some things are just logical. OK, some things you can say, OK, I take these I take these facts as true. And if these things are correct, then I can't possibly get to this place. Therefore, <clears throat> there's got to be something wrong with this particular idea over here. And in some ways, that's what science is like uh, to quote. There might be giants. You know, a scientific theory isn't just a, a, how do I say, a scientific theory isn't just a hunch or a guess. It's more like a question that's been put to a lot of tests. Oh, yeah. And this happens a lot in arguments between atheists and theists in the sense that, oh, you know, well, uh, if you don't believe, if you believe the theory of gravity is just a guess, then step outside your window and test it. 
Bingo. But the thing is, the, the beautiful thing about computers and simulations and computers is you can test those things, right? Without having a whole bunch of PS, you know, falling to their deaths off bridges, right? <clears throat> no jokes. <laughs> I see your face there. You're just dying to say something. No, no, no. This, but this also extends it. Well, the Big Bang Theory, it's just a theory. It's just a guess. I, I know. And, that's, so, and, and, you know, this is one of those places where... Um, terminology is is our worst enemy i mean we've you know we have a word which at one time meant something to different people and the word has changed over time uh you know a scientific theory is not oh you know i theorize that uh, that tree over there will suddenly turn purple in the next five minutes like that's not a theory you know and it's not likely to happen so th there are criteria to get there um I mean, some of those things are just stupid. It's, it's sort of like a PhD, you know? It's it's one of those things that I sort of joke about. It's like a, a doctor of philosophy. Well, philosophy doesn't sound like science, but science, is, philosophy, science used to be called philosophy before it was called science. And we have those three initials back from the days when it actually meant some something to say, I was a doctor of philosophy as opposed to, anyway, I digress. Let's go back, let's go back to these models. So <clears throat> another place where it's actually more, which where it's actually easier to understand the idea of correlations. Okay, and remember we're talking about like massive amounts of computing power here, which is also one of the reasons why this is possible today. That kind of computing power didn't exist 20 years ago, right? So it's um, not just the big chunk of data; it's the ability to process through it. Yes, yes, yes. It, it is definitely the ability to process it. One of my one of my favorite ones is you know the people who argue that the um, the specifically in, in the case of artists okay and um, just before I get to the artists I, I want to talk about the idea that you know jobs of different types have been disappearing and replaced often with new things and so forth but the original the old jobs have disappeared countless times over the course of you know however far back you want to go okay. And nobody ever seems to miss those things. It's when those of us who are who consider ourselves smarter, you know, the uh, the writers, the artists, the the you know the the thinkers of the world, when all of a sudden something is entering into our playing field, now it's a really bad thing. We didn't complain when other people's jobs were disappearing before. It's like, well, that's because you know that that type of work. Well, it was obviously going to get replaced at some point. You know, now now we're being now we're now we know what it feels like. And some people first, are- First they came for the stagecoach drivers and I did not complain. First they came for the lamp light, the lamp lighters, then they came for the stagecoach drivers. <laughs> then they came for the town crier, I don't know. And now- And I didn't do anything. Now, now they've come for the writers and, and the artists. Oh my God. Uh, but, but, but art, art is one of the places where this makes a hell of a lot of sense, okay? If I study art my whole life and I look at a lot of paintings and I, I look at people's works and I study the way they did brush strokes and, and, uh, and, and I look about at these types of landscape paintings or these types of portrait paintings and so forth, over the course of time, I'm going to build images in my brain of this is what a landscape looks like. This is what a, a portrait looks like. This is you know, this is what a mountainscape looks like and so forth. I'm going to do all of that. And 
without thinking about it, when I start creating my own works, I'm going to be bringing all of these things into play that I've learned over time. All of the inspiration that I've taken from all of the artists that I've studied, all the paintings I've looked at, all of the hell, all of the advertising, you know, that I see on the pages of magazines. I'm going to take all of that and it's all going to go into the things that I create with models that create art, for instance. That's exactly what's happened. It's looked at all of those things. OK, and if I were to ask you of if you took all of the pictures that are sitting on the Internet, like that are sitting on websites, including artists works and so forth, how much data do you think all that stuff takes? Is it is it a couple of gigabytes or is it somewhere in the in the petabytes? I would I was going to be somewhere in the middle and saying it was some amount of terabytes, but I'd probably be wrong. Oh, it, it, you know, many, 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 many terabytes. Okay, it's okay. it's a phenomenal amount of data, and yet the model files, the the so-called checkpoint files or pickle files that are used for things like stable diffusion, are like two and three gigabytes in size. You have more images on your PC right now, you know, people have bigger SIM cards in their phones to store images than, there, than you can store in a three gigabyte file. And yet all of the artwork that a, um, an image generator like Stable Diffusion creates, all of that stuff is stored in a two or three gigabyte file. That's not compression. That type of compression would be the black hole level frigging compression. It's because the model has learned what a dog looks like, has no. learned what. Sorry, go ahead. With, with, with your indulgence, I'd mm -hmm. like to kick the whole issue of image based AI into another episode. <laughs> uh, we're, we, are, we, are, we are coming close to an hour of doing this. Yeah, that's true. And we haven't gotten out of the philosophy yet, because one of the things that in in prep for this, one of the things I'm hoping we would do, meaning you, would be, <laughs> would be, well, the thing is, you've played with this a lot more than I have. I have dabbled. You have been nose deep into knowing what works, I, I, what I have, yeah, what's good, what's yeah. bad. And as much as I usually loathe top ten lists and their ilk on the internet. Um, I I would love to see a situation where you and maybe tiny bit me sort of go into this is what we've tried and this is what works because right now there's a there's a there's a ton you you search for GPT interfaces and they're growing exponentially right and so what I was going to suggest was in our next episode is to go over the various ways these work. Some are web services. Some you load onto your onto your own computer. Mm -hmm. Some some are, are are text chat based, and some are image based. And I'm quite sure that there's going to be. I'm I know already there's some that will create sounds and music based on on prompts and things. Oh, like absolutely, that. absolutely. So um, okay, so so let me so let me just jump in for a second there and and say that. What I think is really important is for people to actually play with this stuff, okay? And there are tools out there that are completely free. Like, for instance, if you go to chat.openai.com, okay, you can access ChatGPT. 
and you'll be accessing the, the uh, 3.5, the GPT 3.5 model, or probably the Turbo model at this point, um, which is extremely capable. You don't get to access GPT 4 at the moment unless you subscribe to uh, ChatGPT Plus, which you can do for $20 US a month. And I do. If you find it useful, if it's the sort of thing that, you, as you, you know, to use your words, you're, you know, knee deep in. Um, or I think that I think those are the words you used. Anyway, you know, if if you're really deep into that, then you may want to spend the 20 bucks a month. It may well well be worthwhile, especially given the fact that you get to play with GPT-4. You're you're playing with the bleeding edge, and it's always available as well. At least, well, it's pretty much always but, available because you get priority. Sorry, but I would like to spend some time. And I think we can give an, a, a significant amount of detail mm -hmm. to, okay, you don't, you're, you've got 20 bucks a month to spend, but there's a zillion alternatives out there, each yes. telling you they're, they're better than the last. Some are completely open source. Yep. And, in fact, and in fact, some of them not only are saying, uh, put in the chat of your choice, but also, could you help us out by, you know, embarking in a project that will help us make our system smarter, which is a phenomenal way to contribute to open source without being a coder. I love this. And this goes, this takes us back to the beginning of this episode where we talked about bringing the fun and excitement back into open source. Yes. And this is where I can see okay. this happening again. Okay, and so I'm gonna give, so, so I, I know we're running up against the top here, but let me give you homework and let me give everybody some homework then, okay? Okay, there, let's, let's go with text models for starters, okay? Like in, in other words, versions of chat GPT that you don't actually have to pay for, but that if you want, you can experiment with. You can even load it on your PC, but you don't have to because these things will provide an interface that you can use online that you can experiment with. One of them is called open-assistant.io, open assistant. And it is one of the alternative large language models, not big like a GPT-4, but there's a huge community of people that are involved in it, that are developing it, that are training it, that are experimenting with it. And it's kind of an exciting one to take a look at. Another one is Hugging Faces chat, huggingface.com slash chat. And Hugging Face also has um, a model that you can, and Hugging Face, you asked me about Hugging Face. Hugging Face is, is a company, yes, but they provide things like APIs and places for developers to put their models and stuff like that. Go ahead. I think we, I think we have enough for a future episode in just talking people through that. I say that because <clears throat> I know I, I'm looked at this stuff. I love it. As I told you yesterday, I had a look at the Open Dash Assistant dashboard. It can be intimidating. I think we may have a role to play in actually talking people through this. And again, how do you get the most out of it? Even if we can give a little guidance in how to write a good prompt. So you you're know, not you don't, you don't even have to start there. You can sit down and say, you know, write me a poem about birds on a windy day. You know, okay. like but I, I, again, that's what a lot of people are doing. I yeah. want to explore with you because you're probably in a better position to answer this than most. How do you take this out of the realm of, I won't say the trivial, but I will say the mundane and <laughs> put it into the stuff. So, well, for instance, and I won't go into this in depth, a lot of the image-based AI to me just looks like science fiction book covers. Um, but the, no, no, the issue is, yep. we know the potential is beyond that. Yes. 
we know the potential is beyond you know express you know express the u.s bill of rights as a haiku right we know that we can take it past that kind of thing and yeah. how how do you see and how can we both we and our anyone listening how can we take this beyond that stuff into things that will actually make us better and potentially even make the people around us and potentially even society better i absolutely buy into your premise that this is going to be a net benefit let's start thinking about the paths we can take of how to get there right okay. now right now it's just in toy territory right yeah people are, people are playing with it to, and creating verbal and literary toys how do we take that out of the toys and into something useful and practical and i think we have an entire episode just for that all right well in that case then since we're going to wrap it up here and i know i know we're up at the top of the hour here since we're going to wrap it up let me finish it by saying that you know play is is a child's work okay this is this is this is the job of children and with a lot of this stuff we are all children so i i think what i want to leave people with today is i want you to play like i want you to, like i realize that it sounds like mundane it sounds like silly stuff but don't try to come up with a cure for cancer today like you know there are people who are working on this at the moment you the average person who is just getting into this who's wondering how to get into this just have fun with it go to one of the three sites i gave you there for instance and um and just put in prompts try some of these stupid silly things you know these inconsequential things and just get a feel for how it works get a feel for what it does and don't pretend that you're going to solve any big problems today just play be a kid is that a good place to leave it sure is <laughs> let's have fun with our, our 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 new toys all right well listen it's it's been fun um We'll, but we will we'll, need a continuation. It's, we're going to continue this. Maybe we, we, knew before, we knew before we started this was more than one episode. <laughs> we have to change the name of the podcast to, I don't know, Tech, tech Tie, like T-A-I, get it? <laughs> Bye, Evan. <laughs> Bye, Marcel. Good luck thinking a new name. <laughs> Hi, this is Marcel, after the show. If you like what Evan and I are doing here, there are many ways that you can help support the podcast. The most important and easiest of them all is just to tell your friends, family, dog, cat, goldfish, enemies. Just tell everybody about the podcast and have them listen as well. You can also review it on Anchor.fm or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you happen to listen to podcasts. If you have a blog, you can blog about it. If you have your own podcast, hey, that would be cool. If you have your own podcast, you could actually talk about our podcast and your podcast. If you're going to do that, by the way, you should let us know because, hey, we'd like to listen too. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.